Welcome to the Verifer podcast, where we break down the complex world of cloud and DevOps. All right. Hi. Welcome to another episode of the Verifer podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Andreas Lajfors, and uh, with me, I've got uh, Anoop and Lars. Lars is our guest for this podcast. He's a long-term, long-time OSS compliance leader from Bosch, so he's got a lot of interesting stuff to talk about. So I think we should get into it. We'll start with a brief introduction to tell you who we are and what our backgrounds are. I come from a software development background, but spent the last 10 years in CI and DevOps and more recently cloud. And I probably have three years or so of OSS compliance management as, as a service or as a consultancy service using both commercial and open source. So Anoop, do you want to give a brief introduction? I know you're quite new to the whole OSS compliance thing, but you can just talk about briefly your knowledge area and so on. Yes, I'm Anoop. I'm a cloud architect at Arifa. 15 plus years of experience doing DevOps and system administration things. Quite happy to be here, meeting new friends, friend, especially Lars, and quite looking forward to know more about OSS compliance. Thanks. Yeah, nice to have you here. And then Lars, if you would, please. Yeah, of course. Thank you for the invitation. So my name is Lars. I'm, I was project lead of the now archive project Software 360 Antenna and also still project lead of the project Software 360. I started working in this area 2017 after 10 years of extensively using open source Eclipse, the Eclipse IDE, basically building proprietary in-house tools at Bosch on top of Eclipse, also later than commercial products. And I started at another subsidiary of Bosch, which was about open source services. And one of the services we provide is open source compliance tooling and also an open source compliance methodology. And uh, when I joined, it was just a time that where the in-house tooling for open source compliance, which was built on Sonatype IQ with an in-house tooling to put this to the open source. So this tooling around IQ became Antenna. And uh, when I joined, it was just the time when we had the initial contribution of the Eclipse project to put in place. Another thing that happened at that time was the, the foundation of the now called Open Chain Reference Tooling Workgroup. At that time, it was a loosely coupled working group from different companies called the Tooling Landscape where we try to assess the situation of open source compliance, especially open source-based tooling for open source compliance. Yeah, that's me. Great, thanks. We will dive into a lot of that uh, a bit later on, but I think just for uh, clarity's sake, we're going to recap why we need to do OSS compliance, why we need to manage our usage of OSS, and then how we manage that or how we manage the usage of OSS. So I think the two main points as to why come down to licensing. Well, it comes down to risk. And one of those risks is license risk. And the other type of risk is the security risk. And I think the, the licensing one is the one where most companies or most people get involved with to begin with, because it's it can be like a big legal matter. Security is more reserved for well, cybersecurity teams, but also developers who who knows the software on a technical level and, and can figure that out. But the licensing is like a, it's a legal matter. There is a question as to how you use the OSS component as to like how the license applies. But if, if we can just reach an understanding here of, of licensing, my understanding is that copyright is a necessary part of an OSS component. Each OSS component has a copyright and that identifies the owner of that component, if that's people or an organization. And then the license tells you how you can use that OSS component, how you're allowed to use it, what you must do if you use it, and so on. The, the conditions, the terms of using that OSS component. Have I got that roughly right? In principle, I think uh, you're totally right. So the, the, the thing with copyright is that you uh, simply cannot use any copyrighted material until you get an allowance, and this is the, exactly what the license is all about. And that's uh, something that has to be understood when using open source, because you can share some code on, on GitHub, that's easy, 
but on in, in a legal way to use it, you need simply the license. And that's why companies, especially big companies, make a fuss about it, that they clearly understand what the license situation is so that they can fulfill all the obligations that come with those licenses. Because hmm. a very naive way of looking at OSS is that it's free software. Yeah. But, yeah, but it's it comes with conditions. It's I guess as they say, it's not free like free beer. But and there are two like main categories of licenses too. There, there's the the copyleft, which is the one where people are actually concerned about. So that that typically states that if you can use this piece of open source software, but if you do, your the the software that you make must also be open source. It must be released under the same license. So that's like the GPL and so on. Yeah, even copyleft comes with, with two flavors, the weak and the, the strong copyleft. Uh, what you mentioned is actually the strong copyleft. The, the, the legal term is derivative work. So uh, what is so it's a piece of art <laughs> in a copyright sense, which is licensed. And derivative work is what you make out of this piece of art that you get, that you use. And the copyleft licenses claim that derivative work has to be licensed under the same license, but they restrict what derivative is. Strong copyleft, basically all the software that is using your software, but there are also legal things when this applies. So for example, is dynamic linking, is this uh, still the same as static linking and stuff like that? There is also the weak copy left, which only applies to the software itself. So if you use a piece of software and you change it, you have to publish the changes under the same license. This does not mean you have to put them upstream into the open source project, but your customer to whom you give the software, you have to give the source code of this piece of software you are using with your changes so that he can rebuild the software. Okay. And I, I guess for things like build tools and test frameworks, let's say, you know, just as an example, if you use something to build your software, more as a utility, it's not actually embedded within the software product and then not even strong copyleft counts there. The licenses typically set obligations when you redistribute the software. So when mm. you put it to someone else, when you're only using the software, you can do and typically without any obligations. There are modern licenses like the HGPL who also cover, for example, the software as a service case, execute the software. So you are not giving the software out, but you run it in your computing center. But even then, the, the license obligations apply, which is not the case for many of the licenses that were put in place prior to uh, software as a service as a technology. Yeah, I guess a lot of these licenses are quite dated by now and they haven't kept up with software as a service or software as a service didn't exist on the scale that it does now yeah the other type of license categories typically which essentially says do what you want with it i think there's even like a do what you want with it license or there's it might not be i think even a swear a swear word yes yeah not necessarily do what you like with it but because typically the copyright owners still want to be mentioned and the copyright still stays in, in, in place, but you can use the software on a free range. So you can put it into your products, you can sell your products. And as long as you give credits to the, to the copyright holders, this is typically the standard obligation that comes. Yeah. Yeah. With that. So the thing that both permissive and copyleft have in common is that if you use open source components in your product, if you distribute open source components as part of your product, you must at minimum state which open source components those are and include the original licenses. It's the thing that it all has in common. Yeah. So this is when we talk about OSS compliance for companies distributing software or hardware containing software, this is like the baseline. They need to be able to produce a list of OSS components in their products and include the original licenses. So that's, right. Yeah, that's like a baseline requirement. So that, that's a little bit about license risk. And then there's the security risk. And this is it's a, a double-edged sword because if you have, you basically have a team of developers work. If you use an OSS component, you have almost a team of developers working for you 
if somebody identifies a security vulnerability, maybe you don't have to fix it yourself. There's, there's already like an OSS community out there who are maintaining this OSS component. So you can just wait for them to fix it for you. But this throws up a, a whole new host of issues as well. You know, not only can, can you rely upon that community, that depends, but then also how do you tell the, the kind of the good actors from the bad actors? Can, is it possible to insert malicious code in OSS components? So it's like you've outsourced, in taking in OSS in some way, you've outsourced the management of secure to a, a third party that you can't verify the intentions of. There's a small risk of that, right? Yeah, but here we come into an area where where, uh, where we talk about the selection of open source components. And open source is a wide range. So you have some code dumps on GitHub on the one hand side, and you have uh, foundation-based projects with a good governance and a clear process on who has right access to the project and, and so on. On the other hand side, you have uh, company-driven open source projects with, where the, the copyright is basically held by one company. So there's lots of different dimensions on which decide on the quality of, of an open source component. But I think it's common sense that security, that open source favors the handling of security uh, issues because it's open, vulnerabilities can be easily found. They can, of course, be used then also easily if you're faster than the good guys in finding them. But in principle, there is a bigger interest in solving those. Mm. With proprietary code, it's harder to find, but the bad guys, they know how to find those stuff as well. And I also saw this from my experience that in such a case, companies think about how to deal with the vulnerability. If the vulnerability is open, it's clear, it's there, there is no discussion. But if, if you are responsible and how your customers update, for example, their components, you are very reluctant in publishing the information. Hmm. But uh, so then it becomes really difficult to have a clear strategy. I think the, the strategy with, with open source is much easier to deal with. And for example, there is nowadays also tooling that allows you to check whether and vulnerability is really affecting you because uh, using a big open source component does not mean that you run the affected code because you only use a part of, of the open source component, potentially a part that is not affected. Mm. And I think, yeah, of course, there are. it's not uh, the bright new world without any issues, but in, in, in total, I think, the advantages uh, are much higher than the disadvantages uh, when yep. it comes to open source. And, and I guess th th there have been headlines, I have seen reports of malicious code and, and bad actors, but I think seeing those is a good thing. It means they're being discovered, they're being identified, and then they're being reacted to. So that's also when you have so many, essentially with OSS, especially like a widely used OSS component, you essentially have a lot more stakeholders than you would with a, a proprietary piece of code. And look at what happened lately in the Linux kernel. It, it was a massive reaction from, mm. from the community uh, and from the responsible people. When, who was it? The, some university who tried to check what happens when they uh, enter yeah. malicious code. And yeah, I think... And especially in such projects like Linux, there are so many people who are really are doing this by heart and, and with, with a lot of yeah, effort and yeah, emotions, and they are really interested in delivering good software. And that's something that you can't expect always when someone is paid to do something he doesn't like, perhaps. Yeah. So it's from a quality perspective, I think open source is at the top, not all, of course, and not every project, but I think from software quality, when you could range, put the best projects into a sequence, I think the top projects would be open source. That's where I'm, what I'm convinced of. Yeah, and I think I would be inclined to agree with you. There's such a wide range to them. You have open source projects that are used by millions each day, and then you have tiny ones that are used by maybe 10 or 100 people. So. It's a wide range. The the um, Linux kernel case that you brought up, that's a really interesting story for 
anyone listening who wants to go and have a read. I believe it was the University of Minnesota. Yeah, I think uh, Minnesota. And they ran a research project to study how easy or difficult it would be to insert malicious code into a project like the Linux kernel. And so they actually did that research by inserting malicious code into the Linux kernel. I didn't follow the fallout too long afterwards, but the initial fallout was that they banned all contributors from Minnesota University and began backdating, like removing their contributions too. That's that's what I saw from that. So like a swift response from the, the community. There was also this other case of this developer in the Linux kernel who made a business model out of it by suing companies who didn't follow the, the GPL obligations completely. And he got also thrown out. So it was, again, a very swift and uh, massive reaction by the community by removing the code because, of course, they are interested in companies keeping the license obligations, but they're not interested in people creating business models out of that or yeah, yeah. exploiting uh, the idea. So that's, that's I think, not really a, a big danger in the big, well-used open source yeah. project. There's also the concept of, coming back to licenses briefly, there's the concept of license trolls, right? Yeah. Who I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe their mode of operation is that they will take a product containing software, they will somehow identify an OSS component being part of that product with a license breach by the company, and then they will attempt to blackmail the company into paying them off if you don't pay me this amount of money, I will expose you as breaching these license terms. Is that about right? Yeah, something like that. I don't know if I can explain that in English uh, properly, but what they do is they point out that a company has done something wrong concerning the obligations to the company. And uh, there is a mechanism in, 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 in law where you can do this as an owner of the copyright yeah, you can do this and make a fine or define a fine if they do this again, mm. that they have to pay the fine. So that's a, a, a legal act to point that out with the, the fine. And the company then has to accept that um, they have uh, not fulfilled the obligations. If not, they get sued, simple as that. Okay. So they typically do. But with big companies, it's this problem that you can't guarantee that this will not happen again because those guys who were affected by this, they know now what the, the obligations uh, are. But the other uh, parts of the company, even they could have done this already and put in place. And so then the second case, that's where the, the money comes from. They find the second case and then tell the company, hey, you guys, you have signed that you will never do this again, but here you do it again. Mm. So you have to pay the fine. So it can be a, a completely different group of people who have breached the license agreement, yeah. but, but because it's the, it's same, the company. same company. Yeah. Okay. And this works with big companies because yeah, yeah, there are so many business units. If some get sued, the rest will not recognize. This highlights as well how important or how effective OSS management can be on an organizational level instead right. of just doing it on a team level or a, or a project level. And that's one of the mission statements of Software 360, right? Yes. The thing is to ensure traceability, to know which components are used within the company and to know where they are used. Hmm. And that's uh, one of the core cases, the core use cases of open source management to really get the overview. Yeah, because one of the, in big companies, especially one of the challenges is to just know what's right and what's wrong. You may have legal advisors or something available to you or, or maybe not, but to collect everything in one place and be able to see that as an organization, this is how we operate. These licenses are essentially whitelisted. They're okay. These ones are gray listed. They must be investigated on a case by case basis. And then these are blacklisted. You must basically never use or distribute. Um, anything containing uh, an OSS component with this license. Yeah. Um, so that's like, we've been through like why we need to manage OSS mm -hmm. briefly on how we do it. It's really three steps. We scan somehow to identify 
the OSS components. Then we evaluate the risk, the license risk, the security risk. And then post-release, we have to make sure we monitor because the security, the license data is usually static. There's been a case recently where a license was changed. Can't remember which one. It was and the Ruby case. Was it Ruby? Yeah. Do you want they to... used, yeah, that, but that's always the, the fear of every open source officer that you use a component and there is an undetected GPL licensed piece in there. And the, the GPL simply has this rival effect because all that is using this component is derivative work. So via the open source component, your code gets into the situation that it has to be licensed under GPL. That's a rare case, but this is one of the fears of open source officers that something like this gets undetected into the products. But I mean, in principle, from a law perspective, of course, you have used this license, but in the normal case, there will be solutions to get uh, around this when you react fast and swift. And yeah, like in, in the Ruby case, I think they just... It was actually a dependency of Ruby with the GPL license. So they just changed the dependency, issued a new version, and then everybody could exactly. continue. Yeah. So I think there also the reaction was very swift, very clear, and pointed out exactly the issues that make the usage of open source from, hey, let's download something and use it to some work that has to be done within a company, especially when you want to sell products on top of so what about the components which don't define any licenses? So there are some GitHub repositories and other things which actually do not define any licenses. What's your thought of the, the law is pretty simple. So in there is a, there is actually a difference between the US and the uh, European law because in the US you really get something like public domain. So you can make a source code public domain, which was for a long time not accepted in Europe because this possibility is simply not there in, in European law. And the copyright law in, in principle is very clear. You can't use copyrighted material until you have a license. So if someone simply pushes some stuff to GitHub and it looks nice, you're not allowed to use. Nowadays, there is the interpretation that if someone clearly states that he is giving this to the public domain, he is issuing something like a license he agrees that the software is used as you like. It's an it's really a statement. But if there's nothing like that, only the source code, keep your fingers away from that. You are legally not allowed to use it. It's very simple. And and not just you're not allowed to redistribute it. You're you're not even allowed to use it. Yeah, it's copyright is like as I said, it's a piece of art. If you don't buy um, a piece of music, the right to listen to a piece of music, you're not allowed to listen to this music. And the same applies to software. It's simply a concept that has been introduced. I always ask myself why this has been introduced to uh, software, because it was the closest relationship to, to what software is, uh, because copyright actually was done for art, for works of art. And, but like also a, a text, a book and stuff like that. And since books are some printed letters and source code are some printed letters, perhaps that was the relationship that has decided that this is copyrighted material. Because I have i don't think I've ever seen a license in a book I've read. You don't usually open a book and see this book is provided without warranty or guarantee. <laughs> That's right, but it's also typically not open source. So there is warranty <laughs> from a legal perspective and there's a copyright in there. And by buying the book, you get the license, basically. There is typically all of this work is fiction and a new representation similar to other but characters. That's, yeah. yeah, That's Let's, another case. Yeah. Okay, let's try to bring this slightly back on topic. But yeah, you do have to monitor your releases. So you've released a piece of software, it's out there, people are using it. That doesn't mean you can just say the work with OSS is done. So as we've discussed, the license can change. It usually does not, but it can. But I guess the data that moves more is the security vulnerabilities. So security right. vulnerabilities are identified daily. They're kept in uh, the MVD, the National Vulnerability Database. So there's like a community drive to identify security vulnerabilities. And then, of course, within each OSS component, there's a drive to fix those. So that, that means that using OSS is like 
a repeating process, a, a continuous process of are there any new security vulnerabilities introduced that are now possibly in my product and do I need to push out a new piece of software? Yeah. And but, this, sorry. No. Yeah, so this is obviously if you're running a web service or software as a service, great. You can probably push out a release the next day. But within embedded software, where I spend a lot of my time, it's, it can be a different matter. You've got the challenge of like vehicles, for example, which, okay, now we're getting over-the-air updates. Companies like Tesla are actually pushing updates daily to their vehicles. But if you go down into low-level embedded, I, I spoke recently with a company that makes the cranes in harbors around the world and they, they told me that an hour of downtime in a harbor that's millions of dollars gone it's in millions of dollars per hour so they just cannot afford any downtime they have to like thoroughly test all the software that goes out so they have a much harder time even if they want to push out an upgrade or a, an upgraded version a new version of their software it can take months for the customers to actually begin using it yeah, absolutely. And uh, the, the thing there is that the times are changing. And for those companies, this is really a game changer because you mentioned the car. I recently talked to another business unit here who does fire alarm systems. And those systems are isolated. They are not in the network. The car never was in the network in, in, in the past. Even if there is a vulnerability, you need physical access to, to the device to make use of it. Hmm which is quite hard. But nowadays with IoT and everything connected, this becomes a, a totally different threat. And even parts of a car, which are even still not connected, but connected via the car network to those parts who are connected, can be attacked by outsiders over the network. And that's simply a game changer, which requires that also the whole development methodology has to be reworked because people were used to, okay, we build this product, we make the software, we sh uh, put it on stocks, we produce it, but we, there's not a big maintain, maintenance pressure on the software because uh, as long as the product does what it has to do, everything is fine. But nowadays you really have to, to support the devices 10, 15 years. And with, with such embedded things, it's typically 10, 15 years and not only two years or three years, like in the smartphone case. And you, we all know it from the smartphone or from the Android case, how bad it is uh, to get updates on <laughs> even only two years when you have the wrong phone. And now, of course, we have like Android Auto is built into many modern vehicles, the whole yeah. The whole instrument cluster, the whole entertainment system can be based on Android, just as an example there. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's going to be interesting to follow developments there. But that's OK. So we've covered why we need to manage OSS and we've covered how we need to do it. We need to scan, we need to evaluate the risk, and then we need to monitor post-release. Of course, this would be a lot more difficult if there weren't tools available. And I think that's where we're getting into like the stuff that we're most passionate about now is the tooling around mm -hmm. OSS. Um, I guess from my view, this has long been a, a commercial a space dominated by commercial tools. It's been companies with basically with money, uh, making tools, selling those tools to manage OSS and the concept of open source tools that manage OSS has come more recently in the last four or five years. Is that about right? Roughly. Yes. Yeah. And why? I guess the first question then, why did it take so long? Why did why did it take so long for a community that works on OSS to make tools? If we th talk about OSS community as one community, why did it take so long to go from uh, making OSS components to then making tools that helps people manage the usage of those? Is it because it's, a, it's just a matter of when commercial companies are using the OSS components? Yeah, so... I think it's a long story, to be honest. And like in compliance cases, typically happening was that it was the fear that would drive the, this whole business, the fear of being non-compliant, the mm. fear of using some GPL software and this forcing you to open up your own proprietary code and stuff. The fear of being sued and have a reputation loss. And that, that was what the companies 
And actually, at, at that time, for example, in, in embedded software, open source was not an option. Open source management was about denying open source and ensuring that you're not using open source. Hmm. And that was where, where all the snippet scanning companies came up and basically made the market for open source compliance. They That's the logical thing to do. If you want to ensure that you don't use open source, you use such a snippet scanner who tries to figure out if you are using some known public code and you're fine if there isn't any finding. Hmm. And this was this has been established in many companies and they were quite successful in, in pushing that fear and pushing that solution. And big companies simply have this tendency if they can buy this solution, that's fine, especially in such a case. Because there is no guarantee, but what you need in the end is not a guarantee, but you need the approval that you're using state-of-the-art technology. Because when you get sued, you have to show that you did state-of-the-art methodology to find out that you didn't something wrong. Only then you don't get fined too hard. Oh, um, so it's if you breach a license agreement and you didn't do anything to prevent that. That's worse, worse on a legal perspective than if you breach it, but you did everything you could to not breach it. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, I thought so it would if, either. I thought it would either be a breach or no breach. Yeah, but there are really strange cases. So, what what do you do if in this Ruby case? So, the the guy who are using this dependency did his best to to his knowledge to um, make a clear statement for his component. But he didn't understand that using this GPL component was an issue. And there are really weird cases, people who don't state their copyright in a way that could be easily found. You can't get through, go through all the files and really check every line whether this is something. So you use tooling to detect copyright statements. And some things are so weird that they are not found. So errors happen. And that's why what you have to understand in this area, it's, it's of course, it's a breach of the license or not. But it's always also the situation, the case uh, under which this has happened. And if you are simply naive and think, oh, everything is fine, that's definitely a different case than when you can prove that you have an established process in place, that you did all the things that in this case, this has also been executed and for some reason nothing was found. So that's one point. And that was why... A commercial solution is really attractive for a company because as long as this is state of the art, they can claim, hey, we have bought, we have spent so many money on this tool, we have the state best of tools. the art, <laughs> that's it. Yeah. But on the other hand side, what you saw is a lot of tools came up in-house in companies. I mentioned we had this tool that later became a Software 360 Antenna. Software 360 was an in-house tool at Siemens. Toolkit was developed at here for their internal purposes first. So uh, a lot of companies detected that those tools, the commercial tools, had gaps and they built tooling around the commercial tools. And this was the, the jumpstart for all this open source activities, basically, that people detected that they have gaps and they have to fill the gaps. Another thing that happened was that when open source usage became more and more popular, people simply saw analyzing an open source component with a snippet scanner simply does not make sense because what it detects is that you're using open source. So you do this in the first place. And that it's much better to, to check what you are really using. If you look at the modern languages, JavaScript, whatever, they all have package managers. So you don't copy some open source into your repository and use it, but you, you simply state, I'm using component XYZ in version 4. And the build system drags that into your build and, and makes use of that. And in the same way, you can get a list out of your package manager what he will take in. And with this usage, you also get this problem of transitive usage. So dependencies of dependencies. And But this can all, that's a simple call in Maven. You make a Maven dependency list and you get the list of all the dependencies. And this was an, a change in, the, in how the methodology was about identifying the components. So you simply ask your system, what are, am I using? 
And then for each of the components you are using, you check what is the license situation. But even there, you can automate a lot. That's exactly what the OSS Review Toolkit is doing. For many package managers that it simply tracks in all the information you can get and even runs a copyright scan. So not a, a snippet scan, but a tool like Fosology or ScanCode, which checks for copyright statements and license statements in the source files to get an overview whether what they declare uh, as, as their license matches to the findings in the files, which is often a, a deviation. And with uh, simply using the review toolkit in the end, you get a good observation of which open source you're using, what the status is in, in terms of can this be found? Uh, is the source repository available easily? What is the status? What do they claim from a license? What is found in the code and so on? And there are other companies who also do a commercial tooling in this way, but I think they're really in the open source world now is state of the art and uh, delivers the tools you need to do this kind of, of thing. But the difficulty here comes with the technology. So um, you have to support each and every package manager. Hmm. And you have this unfortunate world of the C and C++ developers yeah, yeah. <laughs> who typically do not use uh, any package management, but still copy their, their third-party code into their repositories. In the OSS Revit Toolkit, we actually lately added a possibility to do the detection manually because this sounds difficult and you have this manual step but in the end if you have a repository and this is all your code that you build you don't have this transitive dependency issue because mm. your code is complete yep and uh, you copied it in so in principle the knowledge of what was copied in is there so it's not a, a big step to to make the development team responsible for claiming what they have in, entered the rest of the processing is, uh, again, done automatically, but they need the, the starting information to understand what is in. And there is no good solution. So I know from a commercial tool what they do, they um, have an, an archive of known files. But then in the CC plus case, you again have this issue that you not only copy the open source into your repository, but you slightly adapt it. Yeah, And then yeah. this mechanism fails. So we thought the best solution is really to make them claim what they are using. For this case, it's possible, it's not too difficult, and do the automation after this step and uh, still have a good sit uh, situation when it comes to identifying the dependencies and processing it uh, throughout the whole work uh, lifecycle of, of the compliance management. So one question. Now we tumbled upon very interesting things. You mentioned about transitive dependencies. And if you look from a developer point of view, we especially when running tools, modern tools like PIP or NVM, we typically put some version or put the latest. And what's in your opinion would be a good phase in the software development or during the pipeline to test this part? So if you look at towards the left extreme end where the developer does it, he changes things a lot. So probably that might not be a good spot. But then by the time of the release, if you do the scanning, checking, then it might be too late. So what's in your opinion would be a best? Yeah, we're, 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 we're in the phase of continuous delivery, aren't we? So <laughs> the, the time of your commit is uh, not that far away from the time of the release of that stuff. Actually, that's you should, the OSS Review Toolkit allows you to process this on a, on a daily basis or even on a, a pull request base, for example. Yeah, you can check every pull request uh, whether there has been some additions uh, or changes concerning dependencies. And this doesn't cost too much time. So perhaps not for every pull request, but at least on a daily basis, I would run my toolchain, detect if there is if there is a deviation from the previous thing. And I mentioned open source compliance as a service. The, the whole met methodology is about identifying what you're using, mapping what you found to the knowledge you already have. So in the end, if you want to uh, work in a clean way, you have to approve the metadata of every component in a sense that, as I said, you have the licenses that are claimed by the project, you have the licenses that are found in the source code of the component. And if this deviates, you have to decide what is the situation. You have 
components. My my good best example is always you have a component which has a BSD3 clause license in the root folder, and then in every file you have in the header this file is BSD license. BSD is no license. There are three different BSD licenses with two, three, and four clause. The files actually have not a correct license statement, but there is this BSD three clause license in the root folder, so you can determine that they mean. With this, we are BSD, this file is BSD license that they mean this three clause license. But this is a deduction that has to be done by someone who has who is trained in such things. This is not an automation you can do. Hmm. And the, the methodology also say, gets into gets the metadata into a state that we say, okay, this is approved by the open source back office. They check each and every component used. In most cases, this is easy. They state Apache 2.0, and it they only find Apache 2.0, so no, no big deal. The copyrights are also extracted well by, by the tools. You can simply automate this. But in the end, you have approved information of components. And then in your CI pipeline, you run, you identify the components. And then you can simply uh, find out, do I know all metadata for all those components or are there new ones I, I haven't seen so far? And for them, you can start this process automatically. So uh, from a project perspective, they would add a new component that has not been used in this company. The tooling would, would run through. And in the end, they would see, okay, you're, you're not ready to release because there is one com open compliance topic. This is already triggered. The back office would take over this information, process it, approve the meta information in the database. And then on the next day, when they run this again, they would in the end see, okay, everything clean. Uh, metadata is available. You can go with, with a release, everything fine. And this methodology, this is simply modern, from my point of view, modern uh, open source compliance management. Wow. Yeah, that, that sounds fantastic. Having seen how some companies do this, that is the way I would recommend them to do it. What, what a yeah. great way to get people to work because it's always the question. Yeah, I think in a perfect world, that's they would only be, you would only detect the new changes. I think mm -hmm. one of the challenges is that there's usually a huge technical debt here, a huge backlog to get through. People are actively right now adopting an OSS management process. So if they haven't scanned before, if they haven't managed it well before, they could already have hundreds of thousands of lines of code. They could have hundreds of OSS components in many of their projects. And so they they face this massive, they start by, okay, let's do a scan and see what we've got. And then, oh, wow, we have a hundred OSS components here. And then you have maybe 50 software projects uh, that all look similar. So you have this massive amount of work. You go from not doing anything at all, thinking, hey, let's start managing our OSS to suddenly like, wow, this is more work than we ever expected. How are we? And then you've got you to gotta run just to stay where you are. Like you can't run to catch up. You're just running to stay where you are to manage what you've got. But I guess that's just a question of an efficient workflow and the right resource. Have you seen them being solved in some other good way? Yeah. So what I just described is how we think from... A big company's perspective, and there's always this thing that it's for a big company, it's always more critical to be compliant because uh, you're so attractive to get money out. Not meaning that uh, not everyone has to be compliant, but uh, the risk is simply a different uh, on a different level. So, for example, the Open Source Review Toolkit, what it does is uh, it gives you quite a good overview of your. It takes a while to to run because they check every component with scan code. So, in in, in the worst case, I had the project running for a week. <laughs> For the first analysis, yeah. But if you, if you use and for example, if you use uh, JavaScript, uh, you don't end up with hundreds of dependencies. You end up with potentially thousands of dependencies because mm. this is an, an ecosystem which has lots and lots of components. Yeah, and very fine granular components. And it simply takes time to identify the component to download it to run scan code on, on, on the sources and stuff. So this simply takes a while. But in the end, what you have is really a, an overview of which components you have, which component, which licenses they have, which licenses have been found in the files. And in some ecosystems like in JavaScript, this is typically not uh, diverging too much because the, the components are small and they have ingrained mechanisms to state a license at least. And so the 
they don't have this culture of copying stuff in. They simply use it as a dependency. You get all the information and typically you get a clear picture on what you have to work on for this project. Having an approved metadata makes sense if you are in a company who is really reusing uh, the same open source component again and again. Because then it makes sense to yeah, synchronize the analysis of all the components because it, it's really saving effort. But if you basically have one or two projects, three projects, the synergies between those projects might be too less to really have this, this approval workflow. But then again, you get the list of components and you can see, does it make sense to have a deeper look? So where, for example, is a div divergence between the found license and the claimed license. And you can have a look at that. So even if you're starting and even if you have a legacy, if you have a modern language where you can detect your dependencies, this is not too difficult. It becomes hard if you have grown a CC plus repository with lots of, of developers long gone who have entered stuff. And again, this is also, that, that's also a training issue. For example, if you're coming from a university, uh, you learned Stack Overflow is your friend. That's a normal thing to go to Stack Overflow, read an answer, copy the stuff into. That's a copyright uh, infri infringement, unfortunately. Hmm. So you have to train people. And But from my point of view, if you train the people, if you spend the effort in training them, the, the risk is mitigated a lot. Mm. So uh, then we, you talk about accidental issues and not about uh, things done on purpose because someone didn't simply know that he's doing something wrong. Yeah, so it's not just a, an issue or it's not just a problem of tooling and process. It's also a, like a cultural issue within a company. Uh, you've brought up this license conflicts quite a lot, which is surprising to me. It's something that I haven't seen that much of. It may be because I work with a lot of mostly commercial tools on the project where I work who maintain their own database and they tell you this is the license. But can, can we just touch upon, there's obviously the MVD, which is National Vulnerability Database. It's mm -hmm. where we gather the known security vulnerabilities of, of OSS components. What's the equivalent for OSS licenses? Is there a central repository where we can go and say, I have this OSS component, tell me what license? Not in on, on this quality level, because that's a national initiative, the NVD, and there is a whole process around that. There is actually something uh, called Clearly Defined. That's a project that was pushed by Microsoft uh, a lot. What they basically do is they run phosology and scan code scans on uh, every open source component they can grab on and store the, the raw results. And then they have a mechanism, a process to uh, curate the data. So you can, for example, if there is uh, no source link to the, no link to the source repository, you can fix that. You can fix or you can uh, harmonize or normalize the license statements. There is the uh, SPDX uh, license identifiers, which is a clearly defined way of expressing um, the, the license of an uh, open source component. But people tend to use some strange variations of this so you can normalize this so that you, you have a machine-readable license uh, statement. Right, because SPDX, that's Software Package Data Exchange, and yeah. it's initially, it's just a data format to uniquely identify a software package. Exactly. It's an exchange format for bill of materials, for components, and their metadata. Uh, mm. especially from the license compliance world. So you can uh, drill down until uh, the files and even snippets uh, for license information. But in general, it's a good tool to share the information you have. So since you have to fulfill the obligations, I think we haven't touched that point, which, as you mentioned earlier, typically means that you have to give the list of components uh, you're using with together with the copyright and the license information as well as sometimes the source code. So you have to together this. And if you want to process this in a supply chain, SPDX is a good format to transfer the information to, to your uh, customer who can, then can make use of the information. Yeah, but how, that's SPDX. How close would you say that is to being a standard? How? Yeah. It's a 
standard. But it's a standard. How many people use it? How widely adopted is it? Because ideally everyone would be using it, then the problem would be solved. Yeah, there is quite a competition in the area of software bill of material formats. There is one coming out of the security area. How is it called? I forgot. We can jump over the name. Yeah. But yeah. Okay, so you have competing standards. Yeah, and this other one is seems to be more successful currently, simply because license compliance nowadays is typically done by pushing a PDF to your customer. And so the this life this supply chain management of, of open source is not well established as of now. That's what open chain is all about, but there are things to go. And moving the data through this supply chain is for some reason, hasn't been established. And that's why the security world, the bill of material simply is much more needed when it comes to your own management of the over the whole life cycle because of late findings of vulnerability, which are not known at development time. They had an, more to come up with, with a solution, and that's why they have had their bill of material technology in place. Uh, so earlier what, and which seems to be more successful. So what, what would your perfect OSS management tool chain look like if we're talking about running a scan, evaluating the risk, monitoring post-release, and also providing the uh, bill of materials to end customers? Okay. Could you put that together? Yeah, Claire. Uh, Cyclone DX is the name of the... Cyclone DX, okay. Yeah. yeah, so it's basically what, what I presented on the last EclipseCon, so whoever is interested uh, can uh, watch my, my, my talk there. Yep. It's Great open pitch. source <laughs> compliance as a service. And this is basically centered around the OSS Review Toolkit because this is really a good solution for this uh, continuous integration uh, stuff. So you can simply add this to your continuous integration, get a report at the end, get the documents in the end of the processing, and get an, a list of, of issues that you have to solve. And by the way, I would like to mention that there's also a, a policy check component in there. So you can even automate the policy checking, like uh, you mentioned blacklisted licenses and stuff. So you can ensure that nothing is found which has a license that is on your blacklist and stuff like that. Is ORT still essentially like command line based? Is it more? It's a command line based. Yeah. yeah. So it's an automated, you set up an automated system that, and then you have to on right. your own configure the, how you want those alerts to be displayed. So it will, it will tie in with your ex existing infrastructure. Inks. So what, what we did well, uh, is basically we, so there is already a solution in a Docker container. So you can simply use ORT in a Docker container. And we added that to a build infrastructure. So we started with Jenkins. Lately, the guys have, are using Azure DevOps, which provides simply a build. And you can trigger this build out of your build with the links to the component to be checked. And then this is run in a Docker environment completely automatic. And yeah, that's how you, how you run it in, in, in a DevOps environment. Hmm. And yeah, so that's the, the core. And what you get there is for whenever you run it, you get an information what is in your project, how many, uh, what is the license situation of those, and what is the policy in state of those, and you get the documents so you can ship your product with the compliance information. And this is simply a report so you can generate uh, SPDX, the Cyclone DX, PDF. HTML. So for apps, typically you need HTML because you want to add it to your to the product about page and stuff like that. That's the, the backbone of the whole thing to run this constantly. The second important thing is the database, and we recommend Software 360 at that point, which stores the, the whole data, so which stores the component information, uh, which stores the approved state, so that you know which components you are using and whether you have checked the, the metadata. So ORT will it will scan for you, it will produce a reports, it will handle policy violations. And one of those reports will be to push data into Software 360, which persists the data, acts like a database, like a, a software catalog. Is that the right yeah. term? Yeah. And then that, that supports, the Software 360 then supports the workflow, the life cycle of the issues found. Exactly. You store the, the, the project information, the traces to the components there. Also, you can there's a license database so that you can store your interpretation of licenses. 
because that's also a legal deduction that you have to read the license and you have to conclude what are the, the obligations and how do we want to fulfill them. And yeah, that's then the, the entry point uh, for later phases. Uh, when you detect a vulnerability, there's also a connection to a CVE database in Software 360, but this is not, I'm not sure if this is still working because I think this service was shut down that was used there. That's actually one of the, the big issues, getting the data appropriately into the system. And that's typically something where you would like to pay some money for a good data provider. Yeah, and you, you enter the data, you identify the components involved, and you can trace uh, to the projects uh, in which you have used those components. And then the, the process starts that those the responsibles for those projects have to decide uh, on, but they are informed. So it's not, uh, it's moving from an polling based mechanism to an event based mechanism. You really get an automation and the right people get informed that there's something to do. Great. Imagine if we could get these, uh, these commercial actors who are maintaining their databases of licenses and additional security data and, if they could all just pool their information together and then, you know, if you wanted to use that, maybe you had to pay a, like a subscription fee or something. It could be offered like that, that data as a service could be offered to you. And it would just link up with all these open source tools that do the, the actual scanning work. Yeah. So from a vulnerability perspective, I would pay money. That's a good research office who, who checks for vulnerabilities and does this mapping to, to for example, unique IDs. Uh, there's the uh, package URL mechanism for identifying components, uh, things like that. That's really worth something and something you don't want to do every day in, in your company. That simply does not make sense. When it comes to compliance info information, that's one of the big selling points for commercial tools. But I'm, I'm a bit more reluctant there because what we experienced basically is that they help when you start up to get all the information. But when you run the system you are faster than they build up their database. And you need the information when you add the component, basically, mm. not when two weeks late. The turnaround time with commercial databases uh, typically is too long. Right. And that's okay. why I would prefer to use open source tooling and building up the own, own database of, of components and component metadata, simply because when you there is this upfront invest to fill the database with, with the stuff you're using at a certain point in time when you start but then when you run it it's uh, much more smoother than having a commercial vendor in the picture that has to update his database and then they don't scan this repository and and uh, you get the, you have to fill in the data from the side and so it becomes really ugly if, if you are not in control of the data Right. So in short, then, uh, to, to get that license data, once you've got ORT in place, which is managing your scans and pushing data to Software 360, where you, you store the information and you have your workflows. And in order to get to fill the gaps with that license data, to get the license data, you scan the OSS components that are found to identify the licenses. You have to work out license conflicts and harmonize the, the license statements. Yeah. And then that basically builds your internal or your own managed database of license data yeah and together with clearly defined so until now unfortunately clearly defined seems to be not really working out because the the willingness to share the information there seems to be not as high as it should be or it has to be but this would be a, a cool solution that companies share their their information in in this database and make use of this database but this is um, definitely the more likely approach than building on top of, of a commercial data provider because, uh, yeah, as I said, this makes things ugly. And do you see it on the horizon? Do you think it's, is there any work being done there to, to start? Clearly that? defined is there. Right. The problem is that, yeah, so the Eclipse Foundation, for example, shared that clearly defined. Microsoft is working with that. But so I, there is still things to do to make this working in this, but this would, this is the solution I think that could be successful. Mm. And I don't see the need for another methodology. It's more that either we get this running or we don't have this because there is no reason to build up something. 
besides that. This has been excellent. I've enjoyed this very much. Uh, we have taken up much more of your time than we, we said we would, Lars, but time really flew. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Thanks for taking your time. Thanks for being an excellent guest. Would you like to run down a list of projects you're involved with that you'd kind of like to pitch to people or, or give them an idea where to see the things that are being done, to see the work that you're doing? I could, but to be honest, I would basically refer to my talk on the EclipseCon, which is publicly available because there I summarized basically the whole methodology. Okay. So I w this would not add much value if I would uh, basically right, <laughs> give you right. that again. You're, you're, uh, but I can the... send you the link to the this, uh, screencast there. Sure, sure. We'll include the links to the things that we've talked about, the projects that we've talked about mentioned in this podcast. We'll include those in the post of this podcast in the description. I can tell that you're a man of efficiency, Lars. Very good. If you're interested in finding out more about Lars and his work that he's working on, go look at that, the EclipseCon talk, which was compliance as a service, OCAS, O-C-A-S. Is that right? Yeah, I pitched you the link. So yeah, so we'll we'll put the link in the description as well. So yeah, I've been Andreas this whole time. Anoop, would you like to say yes. goodbye? Yeah, it was very much excellent. Even from a developer perspective, it was really good. I'm going to right away after this, going to go to the OSS compliance as a service talk and get to know more. It's really interesting now. Thanks. Okay. Thanks so much for this. Yeah, again, thank you for inviting me. It was really a pleasure to talk about this topic. I still like it, although actually I, I basically moved out. I'm now doing other open source stuff here, but this is simply a topic that I was very involved in and I like yep. to, Great. to share. Good. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. 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 Thanks for tuning in to the Verify podcast. Please take a moment to leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to hit subscribe. If you'd like help with your DevOps journey, you can book your free consultation at verifer.io.